Welcome back, listeners. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. And I'm your host, Drew Nash. This is episode 105 of this show. And we have a great show for you today. Today's guest and I will talk about a topic that has unfortunately become more and more common in the pediatric population, anxiety. My guest is a psychologist with a lot of experience dealing with children, adolescents, and young adults. During our discussion, we will touch on what we each perceive as being the triggers and risk factors that predispose children to anxiety. In addition, my guest will touch on different techniques that she uses in the therapeutic realm to help patients get control of physical and emotional symptoms. After the main discussion, I'll answer some phone-in questions from listeners. The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave a comment too. I hope you'll subscribe to the show so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. As this is a new project, I'm calling out to current listeners to spread the word. We need your help. Also, check out our Facebook page at The Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can like us, post a comment, and even post a question to be answered on the show. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, the information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. So if you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. And now on to the show. My guest today has a long career helping children, adolescents, and adults overcome personal struggles. She received her master's degree at Southern Connecticut State University. She went on to receive her doctorate at Southern California University of Professional Studies. During her career in psychology, she has worked in school programs and detention centers. She has worked with victims of domestic violence, worked in homeless centers, and community mental health centers. She has done it all. For the past 15 years, she's been in private practice in San Ramon, California. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Cynthia Corbett. Thank you, I'm so glad to be here. Well, I am so glad you came out. How big a problem is this? How often do you see it? I see probably, I would say, over 50% of my younger clients, the kids, are coming in with anxiety issues that might start out with um, the primary complaint from parents might be something like a school problem or anger outbursts, temper tantrums. And, but after the assessment, they're coming to the office. Usually what I'm finding is there are some pretty significant issues on anxiety, be it transition times or problems with learning disabilities that are just beginning to show up, uh, problems with transition times. It could be anything from uh, what might be masking ADHD to 
trauma or neglect or some some bigger issues of sensory motor processing issues or autism a lot of it shows up with angry outbursts and temper tantrums and once we start to figure out what the the triggers are coping skills are huge in fending off some of those emotional outbursts and getting a child to begin doing some self-regulation. So working with parents and the children are really important to be able to rein in some of those problems. Um, So when you're talking about anxiety, how does anxiety translate to outbursts? Because I think most people who aren't familiar would think of someone being anxious, they worry a lot, they are maybe stuck on, you know, the start of school or whatever it is, you know, some person's bullying them at school. How does that translate um, behaviorally to a kid who's having behavioral outbursts? Well, many times when we are looking at Let's say, um, let's say a five-year-old. Um, normally, we would expect to see some types of temper outbursts and um, problems. But once we're starting to look at the six, seven, eight-year-old, and they're still having some of those emotional dysregulations, the the anxiety is there, but they might not have the words for it. They might not be able to describe what it is if they're feeling afraid about going to school, if they're feeling anxious about um, going anywhere without mom, maybe needing to get on a bus. Um, So we we see anxiety showing up from anything from complaints, maybe a stomach ache or some physical problems to not knowing how to say that they're afraid or anxious. So that's when we start to see some outbursts and temper problems. So you have a child who's having behavioral issues, they might first end up at my office with concerns and I might then refer them. But is there something a parent can do kind of prior to that to kind of tease out and maybe get the child to, whether it's verbalize or somehow express to the parent that there's a trigger going on and that whether it's anxiety or something else is something's bothering them. How do you get kids to talk to you about these things when they're young? In the best of worlds, yes, parents would be able to do that. But oftentimes they don't have the emotional vocabulary to do that. So it, it's easy for a parent to fall into the trap of maybe leading them into what the child might be anxious about because that's what the parent believes that the child's Mm -hmm. anxious about. Asking leading questions uh, like, is Billy still bothering you? (laughs) That Billy. Uh Yes, absolutely. Um, Once they're in my office, a lot of times um, some of the things that I will find out just through a natural course of, of assessment and questioning and observation will give me a lot of clues. But there are some pretty good techniques that we have in being able to determine what is real anxiety and um, how to work with it. It could be, um, as you said, showing up with some physical issues that got them in to see you. It could be sleeping problems. It could be um, difficulty with uh, transitions and, and detaching from the parents to go to school. It could be temperament issues. 
So it, it, it really it really takes a a few sessions to be able to figure it out. So there, there's no clear cut answer because every child is different, and we just need to continue to do the assessments. It's, it's why we call it an art. So parents can speak, um, but you have some kind of magic that you use. <laughs> can you speak a little bit to what technique techniques a parent or a child might ex- expect to possibly experience in an office setting like that? Well, normally I will do some um, artwork, we'll do some play therapy, we'll do some storytelling, we might do some sand tray. Depends on the, the level and how complicated the case is. Um, I had one child come in with the main complaint parents were presenting was nightmares and this nightmare was about this tiger that kept chasing this child and the child was just so fearful couldn't sleep um, was going into parents room and, and trying to get some comfort so on the first session I had um, some miniature animals set up in my office and I asked the child to go pick out a representation of everyone in the family and lo and behold he did pick out the tiger for dad aha <laughs> plot thickens so it actually only took uh, one session for dad to be able to understand that indeed he was being a little too harsh with his five-year-old and so kind of open the doorway there see what obviously is a connection and then remedy that situation yeah Yeah. is it always that easy no (laughs) that is in the best of worlds the most simplified case that i can offer Mm -hmm. just as an example of some of the tools that we might be using to first of all assess where the anxiety is coming from or what the trigger might be um normally it's not that easy so we are starting with something like coping skills, something um, as simple as deep diaphragmatic breathing, regulating heart rate, learning some of the more sensory motor skills that they can use on their own. Sometimes I will ask a parent to help the child with positive memories so that they can have at least five minutes a night on focusing on relaxing, fun, happy memories. So give me an example how that works. Is it sort of a bedtime routine or? It can be absolutely a bedtime routine. So long as we just have at least five minutes, hopefully 10 minutes to be able to review all of those comforting, calming, happy moments. So like remember when we went camping and you caught a fish and then this and then the parent tells or does you let the child relate the story the child will actually be able to come up with their happiest memories oftentimes a parent might lead the child into memories that they remember were happy positive memories for the child but it's it's usually a really fun exercise because the child begins to experience body sensations and relaxation and laughter and it it turns into a really good coping skill for them to be able to use when they're anxious okay and other tools you mentioned um, the diaphragmatic breathing what is that entail 
Deep diaphragmatic breathing. I, I always like to give the example of watching a small infant breathe and you can notice that some people will call it the stomach, but it's the diaphragm that's moving up and down. And somewhere in our early childhood, we forget that that's how we're supposed to be breathing and end up with very shallow breaths in our upper lungs and our shoulders. People, I always ask them to take the biggest, deepest breath they can take. And I will always see their shoulders rise up to their ears first. So just teaching a child how to breathe is a really good tool, can be used anywhere. One of the other things I like to share with parents is trying to get the child to regulate their heartbeat, which is usually shooting for about 80 beats per minute. When a child is emotionally dysregulated and their heartbeat is increased, especially if they've had any type of ongoing trauma or anxiety issues, their resting heart rate can be as high as 120. So teaching a parent how to teach the child to regulate their heartbeat is one of the tools that I love to use. It can be something as simple as placing their hand on their chest and using tapping out their beat that they feel yes that's the child doing it to themselves or Te the parent doing it to the child initially the parent will do it and then i will ask that the child learn that technique and by doing that and slowing down their tapping you their in inherent heart rate will slowly kind of slow down to that that rate mm-hmm okay mm-hmm so I, I do use a lot of somatosensory work, including the office work and the sand tray and the play therapy and, and whatnot. But in today's age, we have so many more triggers that are causing anxiety in children. It's really important that we can figure out how to capture these children and teach them some coping skills to reduce anxiety so they're not going into their teenage years and young adult years with a baseline of anxiety. So can you speak a little bit to those triggers? Because my experience in my office is that over the past five to 10 years, it's, there's been an explosion of the number of kids, both elementary school age and middle school and high school age kids who come in just these are the ones who can express that they're having anxiety and what we started with with you was you discussing a lot of kids who are younger that are experiencing behavioral outbursts that are really triggered by that anxiety so add up those younger kids who aren't aware with the older kids that are aware of their anxiety what do you see as being the triggers now in society and during their upbringing that's that didn't used to be there one of the biggest triggers we're seeing is social media we know that there's a direct correlation of time spent on devices time spent on social media and anxiety so the more we can control the time and the usage and using some responsible decision making to reduce time on devices is huge in order to promote sleep and to be able to 
use appropriate coping skills. In addition to the social media, there is an awful lot of energy around um, being successful and getting into the right colleges, getting the grades, getting all of the extracurricular activities, being in sports and playing music and just being overscheduled. So the pressure on the the young teenagers and the young adults has magnified over the past several years to the point of 50% of the clients that we see are on either medication or need of medication or using legal substances to self-medicate. We're seeing much more vaping. We're seeing much more just self-harm really yeah yeah as a response to to the stresses of society i mean i think we're all all equally guilty of you know having this i mean there's not a person i know that does not have a cell phone and those every time it buzzes it creates this quick adrenaline response that at least adults our age had the opportunity to grow up without that mm-hmm. and now I mean, we see i have patients who are six and seven years old whose parents buy them cell phones mm-hmm. can't imagine what they use them for other than apps but there's that that expectation that they're going to be exposed to that this early when their brain is still fully in the throes of being formed um and then there's the syndrome of if you're standing in line, whether it's Starbucks or whatever you're standing in line for, you can't just stand there with your thoughts anymore. You have to be looking at your phone. You have to be checking your mail or seeing if anyone has posted anything to your Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I'm as guilty as the next person for doing that. But at least I have the benefit of not having that be part of my neurologic upbringing. Um, and it's something that, as adults, we can regulate with children in, in addition to the all of the social media pressure of likes and potential bullying online. We also have gaming and the entire video gaming explosion that has occurred. I mean, the ability to be connected to the Internet and just when you have an Instagram account or a, any kind of a social media account, you are connected to all of the things in the internet, including the dark web. And kids don't have the, they don't have the impulse control to, or the just judgment because they're, they're children. So you're giving a tool that has amazing capabilities as far as being able to research and obtain information to a kid that frankly, no fault of their own, has no common sense or very little. (laughs) Exactly. And going back to the original discussion of anxiety and behavior modification and needing to limit that time and having parents needing to be the child's executive brain, executive functioning in their brain, hugely important. So along with social media and the video gaming and the just the general sense of competitiveness that's out there once we start to look at the the child 
as a developing adult, we need to be very cautious on limiting our own device use, our own time, because we, we do know it's affecting the yeah. brain. So setting a good example, which is true of whether you're talking about eating your vegetables or um, anything else. The question I was going to ask you a few minutes ago, which I know what your answer is, is you know, the question is, is there any good amount of social media, really? I, I can't imagine there I is. I don't struggle I, with that. No, there's I, no positive. There is, no. There's no. It, I mean, it's a reality. It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It may evolve into something else over the next 10 to 20 years because we certainly couldn't foresee where we are now 10, 15 years ago. But uh, I don't think anyone obtains any positive development or growth by experiencing social media. I agree 100%. Yeah. So how to deal with this problem because it's it's here limiting kids limiting absolutely i think all devices need to be limited the uh, the other thing i wanted to add to the social media and the video gaming and the competitiveness is the sense of safety and security that we had generally growing up but today's children don't have that. We, we don't have that sense of safety and security going into schools, going into a crowd. So then we have to weigh the, the device issue against gun control and everything that's happening in, today, in their world today that wasn't happening in our world. So many, many issues of possibilities for anxiety and what the triggers are yeah no, we want our children to be connected to some degree because if we're late picking them up from soccer practice or heaven forbid there's some kind of an emergency whether it's a national a natural thing like a earthquake or some crazy horrific thing like we've been hearing all too much about we want them to be able to contact us but then when my son was what I thought was the appropriate age, I got him a cell phone. It was a little flip phone. And he looked at me like it was some kind of a joke. Like, <laughs> really? You want me to go to school with this? Like, I can't bring this to school. Um, it's like having him wear, you know, dinosaur pajamas to middle school. A kid, a kid could get beat up for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're walking that fine line be, between trying to allow our kids to have enough contact so that they can we can make sure they're safe mm -hmm. in this world of horrible things mm -hmm. and not letting them have too much connectivity because that makes them unsafe is there a limit you would say as far as how much screen time or social networking you should allow as a parent I'm a huge fan of weekends only, and it has to be shut down at least two hours before bedtime. Two hours. Absolutely. I mean, I don't disagree with you. That's a hard sell. Mm-hmm. I know mm -hmm. it is. And that's, again, where the parents come in, and that's where uh, parenting time comes in and being able to spend time teaching a child how to wind down and how to connect emotionally 
regulate their bodies and be able to fall asleep. The weekends are usually the best time for children to be able to have their devices. I'm, I am an anti-Monday through Friday device person. Mm -hmm. I, I do not think it is a good idea. Well, it's not good for you. We've established that. So they should be focusing on other things during those times. Yeah. Absolutely. And then what about as we get into the middle school and high school age kids that maybe are more able to verbalize their anxiety? What other techniques, both as a parent and then as a clinician, that you utilize or you think parents should be aware of what to expect, whether they're in your office or what things can parents do at home to try to help? One of my favorite phrases is, relaxation is work. I find so many times that children are overscheduled, especially going into middle school and high school, that taking time to quiet the mind Using some meditation, being mindful is, is hard work for them. So teaching them how to do deep diaphragmatic breathing, being able to just have creative time, doing nothing, staring at the ceiling. So this is something that I try to share with my patients. And in this world where you're waiting for your phone to buzz, and I can't tell you the number of teenagers that I see in the office for a checkup, and we're, I'm literally talking to them about them this is their time and their phone buzzes and they are looking at their phone four or five times in a few minutes period of time parents oftentimes will scold them for doing it i'll ask them to put their phone down but they can't so there's that influence and then the idea that i'll i usually then segue into when i was a kid you know, an activity would be laying on the grass and looking at the clouds and looking for animals or whatever other shapes um, and no one does that anymore. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing because if you do have 20 minutes of downtime, pull out your phone. Mm -hmm. And create more anxiety. Exactly. So it's a cyclical thing. Absolutely. So mindfulness, when I've mentioned this in my office, and I do, um, the, the usual first response is an eye roll um, because it's not the first time they've heard of it. They, their teachers are talking about it with them. Um, maybe their parents are. Um, how do you sell it? I usually do an inventory at the beginning of our session, at one of the first couple times we've met, on their favorite activities, their favorite foods, their favorite music, and I will get a sense for what kind of, of treats they might like. I, I usually do go for a full somatosensory experience on foods, and I, I might even introduce that as a snack for one of the sessions to see how slowly it can be eaten, how they can describe the taste or the sensation of the food and close their eyes. I might give them a, a taste test and really slow them down on what they're doing. So they would eat 
for me it would be popcorn. So <laughs> they would have a little bit of popcorn and but not shovel it in their mouth, have a, a kernel and let it sit there and let their palate experience it and then take a moment to describe that to you. It's a little yes. bit salty with some sweet characteristics and the texture is fluffy and crunchy. And how is that mindfulness? That is mindfulness by slowing your sensory motor functions down and paying attention to what's going on and what you're tasting and how you're eating it and what it feels like. And how does then, how do you then expand that to an exercise or some kind of a training where they're learning to do this with some regularity? Do you have, do you give them homework? Sometimes I will give them homework. Sometimes I might use a GSR machine that I have, Galvanic Skin Response, that can train them on how to slow down their heart rate, slow down their breathing. It is useful because it is just another device that they are familiar with, but this device will be able to help them regulate their breathing and their heart rate so that we can start to recognize when they're having some thought or some behavior that's increasing their heart rate and their breathing, that they're able to identify that as anxiety and be able to step back, slow down, calm down, think of other choices, and come up with some better alternatives. I might use yoga. I, I have used some yoga work in my office. I have referred out to yoga. I know they are offering yoga in schools and getting younger and younger children involved. And they like it. They like the sense of calm. So the earlier we can introduce that to them, the better they are. When is medication um, more indicated? As a primary care doctor, I try to, when I see the patient initially, talk to them about things. My first step usually is to send them off to someone to talk to, to get these skills and learn mindfulness and become more in touch with their feelings. Um, but at what point do you work with them and then send them back to either their primary care physician or to a psychiatrist for possible medication intervention? How long does that take for you to evaluate? And is there a time when you kind of feel like it, we're, at a, we're in a rut and we can't get any further? I can usually make that assessment in, in about 12 sessions, sometimes less, but if parents are on board with the behavioral modification and doing some positive reinforcement for the positive behaviors and being consistent and predictable on the negative behaviors, we can usually introduce the coping skills and see that they're effective. and. The child feels better. The child wants to be in control. So I can usually see that in, by the 12th session, sometimes the 6th session. It just depends mm -hmm. on the child. Not instead of what you're doing, but as an adjunct yes. to help kind of turn down the intensity of what they're experiencing so they can make more headway. Yes. Yeah. So just to kind of circle back to the beginning here, because we talked a little bit about 
triggers and what we kind of perceive, you and I both, as factors that have really worsened this problem in this day and age for kids of all ages. As if you were to be able to talk to parents of, say, a newborn, because you can, because this is a podcast, <laughs> and there are some parents of newborns who are maybe listening. Any advice for things you can, can, do, you can do as a parent um, that are probably going to involve limitations on social media, but anything mm -hmm. you can do as a parent to try to help minimize the chances that your child is going to experience more anxiety than they need to as they're growing up? Factors you can control? I am a, a huge follower of neurodevelopmental neurodeve psychology. One of the things that I honestly believe is that that entire first two years of life are huge in the way that the brain's foundation is beginning to develop. So um, consistent attachment and a consistent nurturing, consistent calming, and teaching the, the infant from that very early age soothing techniques will be so beneficial when the, the terrible twos hit and those dendrites start to explode and we start to see the tantrums. Once we can begin to work with the parents on helping parents calm the child, um, use consistent, predictable, magic one, two, three, it's so much easier for the child to transition through their emotional development in that three to six year range where their limbic system is starting to light up and be able to work with the child on safety and security, giving them emotional menu words so the child knows how to describe what's going on with them. That prob probably would be my best advice. So really focusing on those first couple of years that are kind of the bonding and security years. Yes. Where they're kind of learning what the world is like and what their environment is like. Absolutely. Okay. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Academy of Pediatrics recommends no screen time for the first two years. I think sometimes that's not realistic when you have older siblings, but I think it's there's a foundation for that and there's a rationale for that if you can kind of just keep it not electronic and keep it cuddles and love and nurturing and those sort of things yes self-regulation that's yes. where it all starts okay uh, well I want to thank you for coming today and talking to us I know that the information that's here is going to be helpful for a lot of people and um, opportunity for you to tell people if they would like to hear more from you or seek your professional advice how can people get a hold of you my office is in san ramon i can be reached at 925-831-0341 okay and i will be happy to help you out and do what we can an age range of kids and adults that you see? I have worked with children as young as two uh, up through geriatric. Okay. So I do work with some families. I do some individual. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Corbett, for coming in. I appreciate it so much. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And now, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll answer some phone-in questions. And we're back. Before we take questions, I want to let the listeners know about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. We also have a Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions or ideas for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. And now for the questions. Hi, Dr. Nash. This is Amy from San Ramon. I have a teenage daughter that's thinking about um, trying the vegan diet. So I'd want to know if she's going to get enough nutrition and development growth on that diet. So I'm a little hesitant to allow her to have that diet or not. So let me know. Thanks. Thanks for calling, Andy. That's a great question and one that I've been hearing more and more about over the past few years as increasing numbers of kids are becoming interested in having a vegetarian or a vegan diet. So kids can definitely grow and be healthy on a vegan diet, but it requires a little bit more thought and planning to make sure that they're getting all of the essential nutrients that they would be able to get without thinking too much on a non-vegan diet. First of all, protein. Protein is usually easy to come by for vegans. Beans and rice combined together at the same meal make a complete protein. Soy protein such as tofu is an excellent source and one that's commonly utilized in uh, vegans. So that's not too hard. Other vitamins and minerals to think about. Vitamin D, which most people get from dairy, is going to be lacking in most vegan diets. The only food I'm aware of that contains vitamin D naturally are mushrooms, and most kids don't eat a ton of those. So giving a vitamin with vitamin D, and we're shooting for about 2,000 international units a day of vitamin D for most kids. Iron, which is most plentiful in meats and eggs, is going to be a little bit harder to come by, but is present in green leafy vegetables. Things like zinc and calcium and vitamin B12 are also present in lesser quantities in certain vegetables. But the easiest way to really ensure that your child who's on a vegan diet is getting all these things is to give a couple of vitamin supplements to make sure you've got all those bases covered. So I would recommend a multivitamin that contains iron as well. Any brand of a teenage vitamin with iron should have enough zinc and iron and some vitamin D, but not quite enough to satisfy most dietary needs. I generally recommend giving a little extra vitamin D on top of the regular multivitamin because most of them don't have quite enough in there to make the 2000 IUs, but look at the labels. And the last thing to think about is omega-3 supplementation. EPA and DHA are 
fatty acid supplements that will fill any gaps in as far as long chain omega-3s and short chain omega-3 fatty acids that might be lacking in some vegan diets. So an omega-3 supplement combined with a multivitamin and a vitamin D should fill in those gaps and allow your child on a vegan diet to grow normally and get all of their nutritional bases covered. I hope that reassures you. The next question is actually from our Facebook page. Thanks for writing in. The question reads, Dr. Nash, I have a two-year-old daughter who frequently tests limits. My partner and I have been struggling with parenting strategies and are wondering whether or not there is a role for spanking in disciplining a toddler. Can you please comment? This is a topic that comes up from time to time when I'm discussing parenting strategies and limit setting with parents. Now, it used to be that spanking was considered just a normal parenting tool that was used. However, in the last 20 to 30 years, it really has fallen out of favor. Benjamin Spock, the famous pediatrician from the 60s and 70s, was really the first pediatrician to propose that maybe spanking your child wasn't a good idea and that there were other strategies like talking things through, having timeouts, and having consistent limits that might be more effective and be less apt to condone violence. Now, in this day and age of the world really being crazy and horrible things happening on what seems like a daily or at least a weekly basis, I think it's important to take a step back and take a look at behaviors that we as parents are trying to model for our kids. And when a child crosses a line or exceeds a limit as they invariably will and will over and over again, using a swat on the butt or a slap on the hands or worse does not model the behavior that we as parents are trying to have our children strive for. In fact, I think it's counterproductive. How can we as parents and as adults in a society teach that violence is not a solution to a problem if we use spanking or hitting or slapping as a disciplinary tool? Now, sometimes when I'm discussing this with parents, they come back at me, well, it works. And it does work, at least short term, in that when a child is spanked, they become fearful of the parent and are going to listen when the parent begins to get upset. But there are other ways to command respect as a parent, having consistent limits, having consequences for actions, and positively rewarding good behavior has been shown to be significantly more effective at reinforcing the positive than negative reinforcement, such as spanking, has been shown to affect negative behavior. I could probably devote an entire podcast to the topic of parenting and spanking sometime in the near future, but let's just leave it for now to say that if you're struggling with your child or toddler to find an effective parenting strategy to limit their behavior, then the best resource is probably your child's pediatrician or a good book on parenting, but that spanking is not the answer. And that's our show for today. I would really like to thank my guest, Dr. Cynthia Corbett, for coming in and talking to us about childhood and adolescent anxiety. I think her perspectives were very insightful. 
I hope you enjoyed it and can use the information to help both prevent anxiety in your child, as well as to identify when a child might be struggling and need help. For those of you who have been enjoying this podcast, spread the word. Tell your friends to listen and subscribe. Check out our Facebook page at The Owner's Manual Podcast. Leave a comment, a question, or an idea for the show. Until next week, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you good health and happy parenting. The opinions and belief expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, MD, and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.